Hi, you're listening to Water We Swim In, a podcast series which explores what system change really means. So each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society has been designed so we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. So luckily this week for a very exciting bonus episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Lent, someone who specialises in exactly that, understanding how we got here and figuring out where on earth we go next. Um, So Jeremy is an author whose writings investigate the underlying causes and patterns of thought that has led our civilization to its current crisis. The journalist George Monbiot refers to him as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. And once you read his two incredible books, The Patterning Instinct or The Web of Meaning, you'll probably be inclined to agree. So Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me today for this episode. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Tilly. Really glad to be here talking with you about this. Fantastic. So, I mean, maybe before we dive into sort of meaty topics, uh, maybe you could just give a little overview of your work. Um, Obviously, we talk about it in episode two, but just for listeners who don't have that context. Yeah, well, you kind of summarized it really well in terms of um, it looks at sort of how we got here and ultimately from that where we might be heading. Those books that you talked about, um, that one called The Patterning Instinct <clears throat> came out a few years back. That's a book that looks at the different ways in which um, different cultures may have made sense of the universe all the way back from hunter-gatherer times to the present. And what it shows is that the different ways in which cultures actually make meaning out of the universe leads to their values, which ultimately shapes history. So we actually get to see how the way our, what we take as our dominant uh, culture today, like I, I love the title of your whole series, The Water We Swim In. We don't think about um, the water we swim in. We don't think about the value system that we have. We just think that's what it is. That's what life's about. But that book kind of shows um, it doesn't have to be that way. And there's particular historical contingent reasons how we ended up with this worldview today. And the more recent book, The Web of Meaning, Well, the subtitle is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And what that book does is it actually offers an alternative worldview to this dominant worldview we have that's all based on separation from nature and conquering nature and extraction and exploitation. And it shows that some of the great traditions of the past, like Buddhist traditions, Taoist traditions, indigenous knowledge, actually point to the same underlying um, insights that modern systems sciences point to, which is that our deep interconnectedness actually drives pretty much everything in our reality. And it shows that science and spiritual wisdom are not necessarily um, on separate domains, but they actually kind of relate to each other. And it offers a, a, a worldview of interconnectedness that could potentially lead our entire civilization to a much more integrated and flourishing future. Yeah, absolutely. And I can attest that they are amazing books. I mean, I found them quite transformative just for me personally and how I move through the world. And, you know, once you see the world differently, it has yeah. it has an effect on your inner life as well, I think. Um, and like you say, you know, I mean, you go right back to when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, start right at the very beginning. And it's a really comprehensive look at how these worldviews have shifted um, and then how that's in turn meant that we've shaped the world, you know, um, over many, many, many years. But obviously today we're going to try and focus uh, on a topic that's pretty firmly planted in our modern world. um, And that's 
the corporation and uh, how we might curb their considerable power or redirect it to become less of a threat to our world, basically. And obviously, of course, you know, in terms of understanding corporations, it's not just research or observation that's shaped your understanding, but it's also firsthand experience because you spent the first half of your career, I think you put it as, you know, in the heart of our capitalist system. Well, that's exactly right. Um, In fact, yeah, in the um, first part of my life, I actually got an MBA at the University of Chicago, which is like the home of Milton Friedman and the the sort of almost like the the sort of nest of neoliberal thinking, uh, considering where I'm at right now. But and I actually started an internet company back in the fir- in the days of the first internet boom back in the sort of late 1990s. It was a successful company, and I I took it public, went through the whole thing. I was CEO and chairman of the board, and it was a company that did what again right now it's um I'm feeling like there's a, a, a part of me kind of feels ashamed to talk about what I did. It was a, a company that actually took credit cards online, allowed you to get approved in real time for a credit card and transfer balances from other ones to that. And you could design your own card. And of course, what it was doing was encouraging people to get more and more in debt and spend more money um, and be <clears throat> part of our consumer uh, capitalist growth economy, uh, which is everything that I see now um, needs to be utterly transformed. And uh, yeah, I, I went through a kind of a meltdown in, um, in my own life because my wife at the time who passed away some years back got very sick. I left the company to look after her. The company actually uh, collapsed. I really left it uh, when it was too young in its um, uh, sort of evolution to do that. And it became part of the dot-com crash, <clears throat> like after it was part of the dot-com boom. And and for me, I went through, that was what caused me to go through a whole transformation in my own life, asking what was truly meaningful, which led me to write these other books and led me on the path I'm on now. But it also gave me a deep insight into the psychology of the executives and the people who are in that world, who basically drive our civilization towards the destruction of sun right now, <clears throat> and a sense of what matters, a sense of the values that drive their behavior. So I do think that puts me in a relatively rare position of being on the other side of that right now, looking at how it can be changed, but having a a, a personal deep insight into what it's like to be there. Absolutely, I think, because to to know what you're trying to transform is such a crucial crucial starting point. What this series, The Water We Swim, is trying to do is just to to get people to know what what our systems are doing now, to before even think of how we might try and change them because it's so easy to to not understand these things you know they can be so intimidating and complex um right. so the corporation um obviously we we touch on it in our last episode but really we barely scratch the surface because their role in society goes i think i found anyway it goes relatively undiscussed uh, despite how central they are and the enormous yes. power they wield so it'd be great to kind of get into that a little today um and maybe Maybe we just start at the beginning as to sort of what what is a corporation and where did they come from? You know, when did they form? Yeah, I I think that's a good place to begin because it does feel, um, again, coming back to your sense of, of your name, the water we swim in, it feels like corporations, they're just there. That's what life is about. That's how things work. Um, so it's almost like they color the water we swim in. We're not even aware that that's that particular color based on that. Um, and actually, they've only been around for a few hundred years. And it's interesting to look at 
their sort of origin story, if you will, <clears throat> because they, they've got formed right around the same time as our dominant worldview got formed, really, it's the, along with the scientific revolution, and right around the 17th century. And this is when um, this sense of that the Europeans started to have that, wow, they could just conquer nature, and they could also conquer other continents, because they had this amazing power. And it was a worldview that it was based on extraction and exploitation. And the corporation basically was the really like the external manifestation of that worldview and translated into the brutal on the ground reality of guns and power and essentially killing um, and looting because the corporations was a legal structure of what they called a limited liability corporation. And what was happening was investors were sort of putting money into these ships that would go out there into um, East Asia or India um, to try to like see what they could haul, uh, bring back and make profits. But there was a lot of risk in that. And investors were concerned about that. So they came up with this structure that said, what we're going to do is limit the liability of investors only to the money they put in. So if anything else goes wrong, they're, they're not on the hook for it. But if if the if they put money and a massive amount comes back, that's fine. So the upside is kind of infinite. The downside is just what you put in. So they didn't have to worry about their own personal liabilities. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, but what that did is set in structure this whole process where the the risk return trade off got imbalanced. So people got to see, oh, great, I can put money in and maybe my upside is enormous. And what that led to was, in fact, this incredible empowering of a structure that was built on supplying more and more returns for the investors who put the money in. And at first, these corporations were um, limited in their charters. They were set up just to do a particular thing. So even these massive corporations, like the East India Corporation, at certain points was almost like in some ways more powerful even than the entire nation of, of England at the time, um, because it had its own army, it had its own military, had its own governance in India. Um, oh. and, and it wasn't like these people were not like sort of statesmen. And um, like we when we grow up as kids. Um, in England, we read about like the story of Clive of India or whatever, like the swashbuckling hero. These people were the absolute, um, absolutely hideous, monstrous people who just basically looted and tortured and killed indiscriminately just for power. And that's how we basically built the wealth of the, the great British empire. But even in England, people began to realize these are these are kind of dangerous. So they, they would only allow them to have particular charters and then they would kind of close them down. And it was only during like the 18th and 19th century, sort of to help power the industrial revolution, that these charters got to be expanded so they could um, do more and more. And then in the United States in the 19th century, it's almost like it sort of got out of the box. And um, around the turmoil of the Civil War, corporations began to realize they could get more and more powerful by getting particular states to change their charters so they could begin to be like basically perpetual and not be there for any particular reason and start to sort of throw their weight around. And they even got the, um, the Supreme Court where corporates, uh, corporations got to have what's known as personhood. So they got to actually have rights, um, just like real people have rights except they're not real people. 
um, they're sort of immortal and they don't have the emotions of real people like empathy and compassion or shame. Yes, that's uh, I only I only learned that fact uh, relatively recently and was blown blown away by it. The fact that they're you know they're seen they're seen as as people in in law. Yes, okay, that's fascinating. And so, would you say that their sort of structure has remained relatively unchanged since that sort of last iteration? Yes, um, pretty much. What has happened is they have developed more and more power. Um, in fact, it's interesting because nowadays everyone's terrified about the power of AI. Like what happens if artificial intelligence just kind of takes over our entire world because um, you know, it's given some optimization rule, like, you know, like make paperclips as efficiently as you can. And then it turns the whole world into a paperclip factory. In a way, corporations are our AI. They, they've, they've got one um, mission to increase shareholder value. And they're doing that by consuming the earth and nobody can really control it anymore. And so in the, it really is in the 20th century that their power has increased even more significantly. There was a famous um, legal ruling back in the 1930s, um, <clears throat> actually around Ford Motor Company, um, where uh, there was a question of, should the company um, do things in the, in the interest of their employees or just in the interest of shareholders? And the, basically, the shareholders won. There, there was this. Uh, the, the legal finding was the um, the reason for the corporation's existence is to actually increase value returns for shareholders. And since then, even though people say, it, like the legal experts say, it's not really written in the corporate charter that it has to be this way. Throughout the world, it has now uh, become accepted that the goal of the board who basically monitors the governance of the company and the goal of the CEO has to be ultimately to be there in the interests of making as much money for shareholders as possible. And when you think about that, that has very chilling implications when you realize that actually the corporations are so dominant now that in fact, out of the hundred largest economies in the world, 69 out of those hundred are not nation states, but corporations. They basically control every, and um, essentially all aspects of our lives, our media, and um, they control our politics through the um, their sort of revolving door with the actual elected politicians. They control things like COP, um, the, you know, the, the sort of COP process, looking at climate breakdown and has been taken over by the corporations. So they basically fund COP. They're, they're the ones who have their most representatives there. They're the ones who decide what gets said. So that, and here we are looking at our, our climate, the, the earth is like boiling up. And when COP comes out with their um, ideas of what to do, there's not even a mention of the fact that fossil fuels are the cause of our um, of this climate breakdown, because the corporations made sure they didn't want that to be included. It's it's incredible how much of a stranglehold they have on our world. And the thing that's terrifying is that because they only have this one cause for this mission of what they do to increase shareholder value. If you think about what a regular person would be called. If they, if they did their lives only with one goal and they had no sense of empathy, no sense of compassion, no sense of shame, they just knew they wanted this one thing and they would do anything in order to um, succeed in that goal, we have a name for that. It's called the psychopath. And basically, we need to recognize that corporations, are because they're legally persons, they're like psychopaths. 
And, and yet they are the, are the ones who are controlling humanity's future, the future of life on Earth. The thing to um, understand that before I sort of move on from that topic, I want to be really clear that when I'm describing corporations like that, I'm not saying anything um, about the quality of the people working in the corporations. Right, the yeah. vast majority of people working in corporations are good, caring people, care about their family, they care about their lives, they want to be doing good. And most of the time, the corporation will have uh, got them to believe they are doing good in, in some aspect of whatever they're doing in that in that company. So that this is not to cast aspersions on people working within corporations is to recognize that the actual entity is this kind of psychopathic entity that only has that one goal. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you said right at the beginning that, that that when they were first formed, it was to exploit, you know, exploit and build wealth. And really, that goal has remained unchanged, would you say, throughout? I mean, that's still really their goal now. That is exactly their goal. Yes. And so in that sense, absolutely unchanged. Their power has increased. The goal has remained the same. And they we have to have to hand it to them. They've been incredibly successful in doing that. Um, they, because the goal is to basically consume the earth, to turn human activity into monetized processes that leads to investors getting more and more returns. Um, and to look at the earth as nothing just other than a resource. Um, so we that leads to things like monocrop agriculture um, and massive pollution um, and the oceans getting denuded of um, of all of life, basically, biodiversity being lost, the sixth extinction that um, is on its way um, as a result of what we're doing. In every one of these aspects, it's a sign of the great success that corporations have had in achieving this goal of turning um, life on Earth into um, wealth for their shareholders and investors. But a lot of people, you know, might put to you the fact that, okay, so it's not working brilliantly now, or we're realizing there's a problem with this this ideology. Um, you know, is it really is it really that bad? You know, capitalism will surely steer itself in the right direction. The market will lead to innovation. You know, corporations are changing their behavior, their practices. Maybe behavior might not be the right word. Um, you know, there's all sorts of sustainability practices and measures in place now hold apartments um you know do do you do you buy into that at all um no <laughs> um actually and and the, these are really good questions to ask um and of course part of um what a psychopath does really well uh is making sure that people don't see them as a psychopath but see them as really nice charming people um, and psychopaths do that exceptionally well, which is one of the reasons they're so dangerous. And um, so corporations and those who are their sort of cheerleaders have also done a great job of that. So we have this, this kind of ideology of neoliberalism that says like the market self-corrects and um, <clears throat> ultimately it's most efficient if everyone just pursues their own selfish ends. But actually these are ideologies that are not actually right. What the system does is it, it doesn't work for the benefit of everyone ultimately. It works to suck <clears throat> prosperity people create, to suck it away from people towards the elite, which is why we see the gap between not just the 1%, but the 0.01% um, that wealth increase in, um, that they are showing and those of basically everybody else gets bigger and bigger by the year and has been 
has been getting bigger ever since neoliberalism sort of took over the world in the 1980s. And, and so we have to recognize also that markets don't self-regulate in terms of consuming the earth. So people sometimes say, well, if you can put a, a value on uh, things like the coral reefs or whatever, then 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 the, the markets will self-regulate and they'll see that's valuable. But it, it doesn't work like that because if you put a value on the coral reefs and they start to get bleached and they lose the biodiversity, well, they don't have so much value then. So then the markets go, okay, well, let's just put a big resort out there anyway um, and or, or turn it into a port or whatever they might want to do. Um, so the, the whole concept uh, works works sort of backwards. And I think the most frightening part of this kind of psychopathic element of corporations is this kind of greenwashing, the, what you might think of as the smiling psychopath. So the corporations do a great job of spending hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising, talking about, you know, um, green growth and well we're doing you know this is what people want and we're investing in the future we're investing in green energy here and there and these things are just little tiny little veneers um, that are put on the surface of the underlying destruction they're doing and ultimately um, we have to recognize that every single thing the corporations do has to be in the service of this increasing shareholder value so of course it'll be in the service of corporations to invest in a great PR group, um, so that when the politicians that are in their pocket make laws to enable them to continue to destroy the earth, the politicians don't have to worry about getting voted out of office because the corporations are spending so much money to condition people to believe that this is actually what they're doing is good that it makes the politicians safe. And so the whole thing is this kind of self-sustaining system. Uh, that is destroying our own well-being. And so if those aren't the solutions to just kind of leave the market to do its thing, or I think you touched on there, the idea of uh, introducing natural capital. So, you know, uh, assigning value to nature as it isn't at the moment in the market. What would you say are some ways that we could effectively curb the power of corporations? Or I think you put it in some of your writing to redirect the underlying forces that direct the centers of our financial yeah. power. Um, and I think you have a proposal which is sort of fivefold. So maybe we could dive into that first first oh. measure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I, I think the the first thing we need to realize, if if you're looking at a an actual human psychopath, it's there's not much you can do because it's like the way their brain is wired, and you have to recognize that. And you could try to work with compassion around it, but you can't like change who that person is. But with corporations, you can actually change their DNA because they are based on their legal charters. They're based on this legal system that says they are designed to maximize shareholder value. But it doesn't have to be that way. So the, the simple changes, it's kind of ironic because they're so simple in some ways. And yet they're so systemic and profound the people can't even, can, you can, we don't even talk about them because it seems so far from our reality. But the simple change would be to change the underlying charter of corporations where every nation state in the world would have to agree, or at least the, the, um, the, the biggest, most powerful ones would have to agree so that they couldn't just charter somewhere else. But to say that um, the charter of a corporation has to include in it that they are not just 
there for uh, maximizing shareholder value, but they have to optimize for multiple stakeholders, such as their employees, such as their customers, their business partners, the people who live on the land that they are exploiting resources from. And once you do that, it would change what their ultimate behaviors are, but only if you actually made it bite. It's because it wouldn't mean anything if you just if you just changed a few um, a few words around it. But along with that, be this notion that these charters would not be perpetual; that they would have to be renewed. Let's say every five years, and they could only get renewed if they were determined to have met not just the bottom line of uh, have they made profits, but um, what is known as the triple bottom line of people, planets, and profits. And it's only if they've met all of those three that their charters could allowed to be renewed. So then the, the CEOs and the boards of these corporations wouldn't just have to be worried about maximizing shareholder value or you know avoiding bankruptcy, like financial bankruptcy by um, running out of money. They'd have to worry about um, what would happen if they um, had environmental bankruptcy or social bankruptcy because they weren't allowed to continue their charter. So the actual share price itself would um, be determined by how well they were meeting these um, these multiple bottom lines. So then these uh, these analysts who right now get to ultimately affect the share price by coming out with a report saying, we think the company is going to make show this and this in earnings over the next five years. And here's the concern we have. It's always about shareholder returns. But imagine if those analysts were instead studying, like we're concerned that Exxon might not get its renewal of its charter three years from now because it's doing absolutely nothing about moving away from fossil fuels and yeah. it's not investing in wind power. And, and you know, and we're really, and, and so we think that there's a real uh, real possibility of their, uh, their environmental bankruptcy taking place, the share price collapse. So all of a sudden it changes the DNA and and as, as we were saying earlier, what I um, know from my own experience as chairman and CEO of the company that I had founded, a public it was a public company. I know, like you're thinking all the time, what's that next quarterly uh, report going to look like? What's the um, you know what? A, how are shareholders going to react? What's the stock price going to do? Because so much is imbued in that stock price. The employees. Um, stock option plans are based on it. My own, uh, you know, wealth is based on, on like what that share price is doing. Everything revolves around that. But so it would change what that CEO is thinking when they go to bed at night, rather than just how can I make the most money for shareholders? It's like, oh, how can I make sure that I'm fulfilling my obligations? That's the most fundamental shift that we'd be seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say that that's really fundamental and it's interesting i mean going back to your ai uh, metaphor it's sort of like we're just writing in a new objective which is transformative so how would you um how would you regulate this you know yeah. well that's actually the, the next key point because anyone who is familiar with how corporations work should be hearing what i'm saying and the antenna should go up in their mind saying 
wait a minute, um, these whatever regulators there are that did make these determinations, <clears throat> they're going to be, you know, in the pockets of these corporations and the revolving door, like they'll be promised the executive position. And that's what happens right now. And so any kind of regulation basically loses its teeth. And rather than being regulating a, a corporation to stop it doing bad, regulations for the most part are more like enablers of corporations. They're sort of they they're designed to help corporations to continue to destroy our earth, but in a slightly more sustainable way, um, in order uh, that people can feel that it's it's okay for them. Completely agree. I mean, in, in my just in my research, we've been looking at uh, the oil and gas authority over right. here, water regulatory companies, um, and it is amazingly sort of. It seems to be at times rather overwhelming that they have the company's best interests at heart rather than whatever it is they're supposed to be kind of protecting. So the real solution to this has to and um, really comes from a lot of wonderful work that's being done in rethinking democracy around the notion of citizens assemblies and the concept of sortition. And the idea about it is that these charter renewal processes would not be decided by a bunch of government-appointed regulators that are in the pocket of the corporations, but decided by a group of citizens chosen by sortition. And sortition, by the way, is just the way we choose members of a jury for a trial. So it would be people chosen by sortition would be um, employees of the corporation, people who live in areas where the companies might mine or have their operations, a random selection of their corporate customers. So all the people affected by the corporation, including uh, there might be representatives of our non-human relatives who are also affected by corporations, but who can speak for themselves. <clears throat> but so, and so this would be a, a, a body that would be selected and would uh, would meet over a period of time um, and would be hearing from experts that they would get to choose and quiz and interrogate um, to determine what was actually going on with the corporation. And they would be the ones to decide um, if the corporate charter should be um, renewed. So um, the whole notion of the, the sort of bribery and corruption that goes on, the, the corporations wouldn't know where to go. The only way they could actually please this uh, citizens assembly that would, um, that would be chosen would be to actually do their job properly. What if, would it not potentially cause chaos if a corporation that is fundamental to, I don't know, like a very important service, like a bank or a, or a water company, you know, what if their charter was revoked um, overnight? Would that not cause chaos? Yes. And so, because what could happen is the, the corporation could use it as blackmail, like, well, you don't want to revoke our charter. Look what will happen. So rather than just revoking the charter, if you look at what happens with the financial bankruptcy in our current system, the company has to be declared bankrupt. The value of the shares go to zero. But in many cases, um, it's called a, a, a reorganization. The company actually still keeps going, almost like in a kind of a zombie form. <clears throat> but it's no longer actually owned by the, well, the, the shareholders own it. The, the, what their shares are worth is zero. And wow. so basically, the other people with stakes in the company, such as bondholders, get to make the decisions in order to try to get as much possible as they can back from the company before it disbands. So in this case, the shares would also be go down to zero, but then they could be actually redistributed to others, other stakeholders, such as the employees, such as the customers, such as all the other constituencies 
<clears throat> that formed the company. So the company could keep going, but then it would no longer be going based on trying to maximize returns, but be going based on um, doing its business sustainably, doing its business in a way that actually worked for everybody. So what mm -hmm. we need to realize, because oftentimes people will say, and it's a, a valid thing, if you got rid of corporations today, the whole world would like freeze up. Like we relying on these big corporations for basically everything, <clears throat> not just our, our fuel, um, but our, our media, our technology, our, any, any aspect of our lives, our food. So that's why what we, we're doing is we're not saying get rid of the corporations. We're saying change what they're trying to optimize. It's not exactly a terrifying scenario to think what would happen if corporations were actually managed for the benefit of everybody rather than just for the shareholders. We're not trying to say stop the corporations from doing the good things that they do. We're trying to say actually make them focus on doing the good things that they do and minimize, ultimately eliminate the bad things that they do. And if some some bad has to come with it, there has to be some level of pollution or whatever, then look at the most reasonable, very best you can do in that area um, to cause the least harm while you're doing the maximal good. It's not exactly a terrifying scenario to think what would happen if corporations were actually managed for the benefit of everybody rather than just for the shareholders. In fact, it's a liberating scenario. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not because I, I think a lot of a lot of times when when you pose, oh, we need a different system um, or it sounds like you're suggesting the end of capitalism, people assume, oh, you mean communism, because there's only two options. You know, I, th I think I think a lot of people jump yeah. to that. And they think they assume that you're suggesting bloody revolution and, and the end to all things. Um, but like you say, that sounds so unbelievably reasonable. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, just to add to that, these corporate executives that um, we all look at, and, um, you know, just feel like they're such those some people, these billionaires going around um, just, just basically destroying the world so they can um, have as much wealth as possible and look at the bad they're doing. Um, a lot of them, I mean, there are some actual psychopaths within corporations. We have to recognize that. But for the most part, even the senior executives, they want to feel they're doing good. They've got grandchildren. Um, they want to care. They care about the future. They care about their own sense of conscience. They're not the psychopaths. And I have a feeling that many of them would actually breathe a big sigh of relief if they were actually working in a company that was required to actually be working for the really for the benefit of the future and of life around them. Mm. And then what it does, it sort of forces them to just add more complexity into their decision making. So rather than going, okay, we've just got one bottom line, we're trying to, then each executive has to say, well, how do we optimize this? Just the way that we as human beings do when we're making decisions. We don't make decisions like what house do we want to buy? What job do I want to do? How do I want to talk to my friend? We don't do it based on one goal. We are always working through, well, on the one hand, I want to do this. On the other hand, that, let me make a decision. Let me try to um, make the right call, make the right choice. I'll reconsider it in the future. Then it would be just allowing executives to bring that complexity of decision-making into their own plans. So yeah, we, we're not looking at um, a revolution to undo the world. We're looking at actually making the, the system that... Um, that is there in place, changing the actual, a, a deep element within that system. So it works for the benefit of all. It's really interesting what you say there about CEOs, because obviously uh, they're a huge, they're a huge part of this, but obviously they are 
still answerable to even bigger forces like the shareholders and in some ways the market. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Because and this is another aspect of this whole situation. In fact, some people might even look at everything I just talked about and say, yes, but ultimately it's the the money that drives everything and it's the stock price that drives everything. And as long as there's this kind of speculation that goes on around it, um, everyone, all the decisions the company is making will always be short term. Um, and we do live in a world that is massively financialized. I mean, in addition to globalization, there's been this incredible financialization of the world where the vast bulk of wealth right now um, is wealth that's arisen not from actually productive activity, but from speculation um, on, um, on companies in these like massive markets. So a simple concept would be to actually um, change that around through a tax um, system based on the length of time that stocks were held. So basically, you could come up with any kind of way of doing it. But just to get a a simple idea of what I'm saying, you you might say, like, if the stock is held for less than a day, you know, like, say, day traders, or these financial, um, massive program traders, who might hold stocks for like seconds at a time, they can do this like for free, essentially. But imagine if there was like 10% transaction tax for stocks held less than a day. Well, nobody would ever hold the stock less than a day because they wouldn't want to pay 10% of whatever the stock was worth right then that day. And then it could go down over time. So maybe if the stock is held less than 10 years, it's a 3% transaction tax. And maybe if, if it's held for more than a certain period of time, like 20 years, zero tax. So then that would, again, with one one switch, one sort of change in the underlying mechanism of the system would totally transform the system all the way through. Because then investors would start saying, well, there's no point in me investing in the short term in ExxonMobil if I'm worried that two years from now it's going to uh, have this social bankruptcy or whatever, um, because um, I won't be able to sell it in time and I'll have to pay this big financial transaction tax if I did. Um, so let me invest in this company that's got long-term prospects because then if I invest in a lot of these long-term companies, I can enjoy all these benefits without having to pay all this transaction tax. So it would kind of de-liquify um, some of these elements of the of the way the markets work right, right now. It would force investors, force the entire system to look at the actual substance of what um, is being done rather than, you know, over the long term, thinking about the future rather than how they can um, make a, a bunch of money by trading in the next two hours or a day or two. Right. Yeah. OK. So so essentially it's this idea of rather than being able to pass everything over and only look at how valuable something is in the short term, it's slowing that process down. And so people are left holding whatever it is that they've they've bought for a longer amount of time. And so they need to worry about how valuable it's going to be in, you know, five, 10 years, a year. And then that means we're looking at how sustainable and how valuable that is going to be later on down the line when we're looking at resource depletion and, and that sort of thing. Is that, is that is that exactly, exactly. And so then I mean when people are investing, you know, because the idea of investment um, has a great underpinning. Like, you know, people want to uh, know that they have a nest egg. People want to feel that when they're retiring, they can rely on, on something or, uh, after they've put years of their life's work into whatever they're doing. It's a very reasonable and wonderful uh, sort of um, thought about the future is the ultimate underlying sense of what it means to invest. But it's been 
totally, and that all the benefit of that has been demolished by the way the system works. So what you'd be simply be doing um, is using a tax structure to then um, incentivize uh, this the incredible wealth that's in the world right now to actually care about the long-term future rather than to care about the short term. Um, and you'd see very different things being invested in. And of course, what you'd be seeing is um, an immediate investment towards renewable energy, um, an investment towards long-term community building, uh, things that actually make a difference over decades rather than uh, a, a month from now, whatever it might be. Of course, because fossil fuel companies may be valued at you know, hundreds of billions now, but at some point we can't burn we can't burn it so so at some point that's going to be a stranded asset is that is that right yes yeah exactly exactly and right now like and j- just to sort of um, finish this this concept um investors play sort of musical chairs around that because an investor might understand totally Oh, um, Exxon, they're going to be worthless 20 years from now. But I don't care about 20 years from now. I'll I'll be retired by then. Um, What I care is tomorrow. And so they know that in in this sort of game of um, musical chairs, they can get out very quickly. And the goal is to keep investing and keep investing until that peak moment and then get out quickly before um, everyone else gets burned. And that's how they think about things. But this would take away their option to, uh, to think about it in that way. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it, what's been so interesting uh, in doing this research for the series is, is seeing how that short term horizon mentality sort of means that corporations end up acting in a way that is detrimental to their future even. So, you know, our water companies here choosing to pollute all of our rivers and to, to make it to make their job really much, much harder in the future. But because they're looking at that short term. It, exactly. Mm, OK, so. Another thing that we we touched on earlier that you mentioned, um, obviously, is how corporations have have contributed to the huge inequality that we're seeing um, today. And so, you know, how would you propose that we tackle that? Obviously, these measures would definitely go some way, especially if one of the P's is is people and obviously the environment. A healthy environment contributes massively to reducing inequality because climate change isn't the great equaliser that some people seem to think it is. But yeah, I'm just wondering if you if you uh, had any ideas on that front. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, in um, in in this kind of set of ideas I was putting out in in this article you were referring to, um, another is really to uh, cap the uh, wealth that billionaires should have. I mean, um, that this great phrase that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressive American politician, used to say, um, every billionaire is a policy failure, which is a wonderful recognition. Like we we live in a, a world where the inequalities are so vast that basically now uh, just a busload of these mega billionaires own as much wealth as half of the entire world's population, 4 billion people. And that same number of people, roughly 4 billion people, um, don't have enough, they, they don't make enough to be able to um, get enough nutrition that um, nutritionists recognize is necessary to actually be able to live your full flourishing as a human being and expect a um, normal life expectancy. So the lives of half of our world, half of our human relatives, cousins all around us are basically um, 
either destroyed or severely compromised through their lack of access to some of that wealth that those same busload of billionaires have access to and get to basically use as part of this whole financialized system we're talking about to just consume the earth even faster. So the simple notion, there's kind of two aspects to it, really. One is to recognize that the vast wealth that has been created in the world today, it's not right that it should just flow to some Mark Zuckerberg who manages to do a couple of tweaks to some social media idea. And then suddenly uh, all the billions, the tens of billions go into his pocket. Because um, he, all he's done is a couple of tweaks. Most of that wealth has been created by um, the bulk of humanity over generations, whether it was setting institutions like um, your laws or nation states years ago, or just technology or development of the, of the of modern chip technologies or development of the internet. And that shouldn't be one person should get the benefit of what so many people all around the world have done. It's what we can think of as a common wealth. So the concept would be to actually cap those um, billionaires' wealth, maybe anything above a billion or whatever it might be, and that wealth um, to actually be redistributed in the form of like a universal basic income, which has been shown in many, many programs all around the world to be a, a powerful way to actually help people's lives at the grassroots level. And that when people receive what's known as a universal basic income, it's essentially enough income to live sustainably and get what the, the things that they need. And based on our modern ideology, we all go like, well, that's not going to work. People are lazy. They'll just like take that money and spend it on drugs and alcohol and lie on the couch and watch TV. It's the exact opposite of what happens. When people have access to that extra money, they spend it on job training. They spend it on nutrition for their kids. They spend it on further education. Um, they'll even spend it on more entrepreneurship. It actually increases entrepreneurship when people get that. So one shift we can do can make the world just more prosperous for everybody rather than just for um, these uh, few people with their private jets and super luxury yachts. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think in I think in the UK, private wealth has doubled over the last 50 years and public wealth is now below 0%. So right. I guess that would go some way to, to writing, to writing that to sort of increasing public wealth. So I think that's four. So if I'm counting correctly, so <laughs> what's your last uh, proposal? What's the last stage of your proposal? Yeah, yeah well, sure. Well, the the uh, final one is one that actually uh, people are working on um, right now already and making some good uh, progress on it, which is simply to declare um, a crime of ecocide at the International Criminal Court. Um, and ecocide means um, basically the wanton destruction of an ecosystem, such as what fossil fuel companies have done in places like Ecuador and Peru, where they've caused massive damage for like swaths of, um, of tropical forests, like totally polluted and poisoned by fossil fuel um by 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 the pollution that's caused. Similarly, in uh, places like Nigeria, we see the same things. And we see that all over the world. So the the idea about this is to actually call ecocide a crime. But imagine if a corporate executive um, could actually be taken to court in The Hague for having been in charge of just like the 
Nazis who got taken to court for um, uh, being in charge of genocide, um, it's actually being in charge of these processes that led to ecocide. It would mean that they were realizing they're not going to be um, able to just get away with what they do right now. They'd have to start thinking about, oh, I don't want to be I don't want to be sitting there, like maybe facing jail time uh, for what I'm doing. So it would give another way in which people and our living earth could be empowered to actually recognize that what the, is being done here is a crime. And I just, I, I mentioned that um, the organization Just Stop Oil, I was really encouraged. They've just started a new initiative right now of working with a whole um, group of lawyers in the UK to start to actually document what um, what those in the establishment are doing who are making these crimes actually happen right now with the idea that at some point people will look at these criminals right now who are part of this process destroying the earth and actually hold them accountable. Amazing. So they're creating a sort of record, basically. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think um, I, I think it should be supported by everyone who cares about the future. And you mentioned that you know there are people working towards this this idea. Um, I, I think the one the one name that I I'm sort of aware of in relation to it is Polly Higgins. Is it? His yes, work. that's right, exactly. And and so yeah, thank you for for bringing it up. So there's actually an organization an organization called Stop Ecocide, um, and you can find it on the web. And it was founded um, by uh, by Polly Higgins some years back. She passed away a few years ago, um, and it's now being led by an equally powerful. Uh, force for good. Uh, her name is Jojo Meta, um, and uh, you'll find. I, I think it's called eradicating ecocide, and you can actually sign up to become a member of what's what they call the Earth Protectors Trust Fund. And they've had some success. There's a number of countries um, in Europe um, and elsewhere in the world that have actually passed legislation to begin to consider um, this process, and they they also have lawyers actually drawing up the actual legal terms that would be required for this to take place. So the, the wheels are in motion. This is actually an idea um, who, if, if, and maybe it's a bit too soon to say it's an idea whose time has come, but it's an idea whose time is coming. And I feel like it's, a, it's one of the most powerful forces in place right now that can, we can really see implemented maybe before too long. That's really exciting. Um, I think we'll we'll definitely make sure to put uh, links to that organization on our website, definitely. And also just, I mean, just a bit of a side note, but it, it sort of strikes me that there's a real link here to your work that uh, we talk about in episode two, which is looking at how our root metaphors have sort of led us to this disconnect between us and nature and our inability to see that we're dependent upon it and also our obviously our desire to conquer it and sort of exploit it. And this is obviously a measure that we can put in place to stop us doing that. And I suppose I'm sort of wondering, do you think that we can retrospectively address these root metaphors with policies like this? You know, can we teach ourselves different root metaphors backwards, you know, by putting laws and policies in place? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a way, I think we can, we have to sort of look at it both sort of top down and bottom up, if you will. Like, so top down might be like if you do laws or whatever, those things actually are very important because they change our sense of what the norm is, like what's okay. Um, so, you know, if there was a crime of ecocide and you've got a name to it, we we begin, it goes into our system rather than saying, 
um, like what is now being used is this idea of nature as a resource. And so um, we talk about things like natural capital. Well, that changes the way we think. When you hear natural capital, you go, oh, right, um, it's worth um, investing in um, this uh, this kind of idea to make something sustainable. It'll give us a good return on equity. Like the, the metaphor is capital and returns. But if we look at ecocide, um, it changes the metaphor. And it gives us a sense that we actually are part of a living earth. And, a, and, and when something is being done to destroy the integrity of that living system, that is a crime, just like a crime that destroys the integrity of a human being. We need to begin to recognize. Sometimes people talk about like decolonizing our minds um, in the sense that we our minds have been colonized uh, by these ideas that have been um, arising over hundreds of years. And part of that process is to recognize that in the way we think. And all of us, um, including me, um, even after all these years of rethinking and stuff, I notice, um, you know, we have implicit uh, habits of thought that were developed all the way from childhood, that we, we don't need to then view ourselves as the enemy and view those habits of thought as bad things that have to be destroyed or whatever. Quite the opposite. We can look at all that with compassion and look and realize that this is like everyone else. I was conditioned in certain ways. And we can be curious about that. And we can allow uh, allow those uh, those elements, but also realize that we can be part of something bigger. And as we shift our sense of identity to see that we're part of this whole unfolding process of life on earth, then we can begin to develop new ways of thinking about life, new ways of using language, new ways of interrelating with others to actually be part of that life-affirming future. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in a way, I mean, these are such fantastic ideas and I feel like you know our listeners will probably listen and feel hope and then that leads me to ask what I I feel like is a bit of a horrible question which is you know how do you see us starting to work towards actually being able to implement these ideas because even though as you say they're so simple and they're still working within the system they're not proposing a new system they're still so outside of the way that we think and also, you know, like we like we mentioned, corporations are so intertwined into our democracy as well, yeah. you know, our decision-making processes. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts on how we might start to kind of move towards that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I do think, um, I think it's important to avoid any kind of false hope. And you won't see me saying, oh, don't worry, we're, we're going to get this together. No, I, I mean, right now, as things are going, we're headed towards basically maybe the collapse of our civilization or the collapse for most people um, living in the world right now of anything like what we used to having. Um, we're heading towards disaster if we don't change things around. And then we can say, well, just each of us, we're so small in this massive system, there's nothing we can do. But actually, there are things we do. There's this wonderful phrase by um, a systems thinker called Ilya Prigogini, talked about islands of coherence in a sea of chaos. And those islands of coherence, what can actually shift a system over time as this system unravels into a different kind of self-organization. So each of us with others around us, not by ourselves, but in community, can work towards creating those islands of coherence. So if you've got some some great idea, for example, uh, to help the environment. And, and in our 
current uh, system, we might say, oh, let, let me start a company and see if I can get investors for that. And um, and I'll do well by doing good. And But you can shift your way of thinking and say, what happens if I actually start a worker-owned cooperative? Or if I start some project based on principles of the commons? So we can, even just with the smallest things, we can shift how we're looking at them. Um, we can shift the way we make our buying decisions. We can decide to go to that farmer's market close by where we're actually buying directly from the farmer who uh, who produced the stuff. And each of these things, we should never make the mistake of thinking that's enough, but we should also not make the mistake of thinking it has no meaning or it's irrelevant because all of those things together begin to create a new, basically like a new web, a new alternative weave, um, which ultimately can connect those islands of coherence to create basically a coherent civilization in place of it. Well, that's that's really hopeful um, and also completely fascinating. I mean, it's so fascinating, as usual, to talk to you. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And I just want to end by asking, you know, what are you working on at the moment and and where can people find your work? Sure. Great. Thank you, Tilly. Um, well, uh, basically, right now I'm working on a book um, that looks at what is possible if we built a different system entirely. Um and uh, the, the working title of the book is Future Flourishing, Pathways Toward an Ecological Civilization. And this, this ecological civilization is a phrase that I love that lots of people around the world are talking about more and more. The idea of looking at what a civilization could be like if instead of being built on exploitation and extraction, it was actually built on setting the conditions for everybody to flourish on a regenerated earth and what that might look like in every aspect of our society, not just economics, but technology, urban design, education, the whole thing. And great ideas have already been put out there. So a lot of what this book will be about is just showing the ideas already there and showing how they do cohere together into what's possible. And if you want to join the conversation with others, looking at these ideas of deep transformation, I've helped to kind of um, instigate this wonderful global network called the Deep Transformation Network, which you can actually find at deeptransformation.network. Um, and it's a group of thousands of people from around the world just exploring these ideas together in this uh, place where we're building a community uh, um, of people all over and um, just committed to that deep transformation, but open to all the different possibilities that might arise from that. Mm, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful space. I can I can attest to that. Um, great. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and um, I can't wait can't wait for the third book. <laughs> yes, thank you, and thanks for this series, which is just fascinating. I'm so glad you're putting it out there. <laughs>